All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. I would have never believed I'd feel like kissing my goat. <laughs> well, he's available now, though. Oh, no. <laughs> Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 165 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and yesterday I hung out with meerkats and my one-year-old niece for her birthday. It was a delight. Which was better? Well, I wasn't going to comment on the order I've written them in uh-huh. that sentence. I shall just leave it up to the listener. <laughs> Tell me about the meerkats, please. They're adorable. We went to Tropical World in Leeds on Yorkshire Day. What a day to go. And they were very, very cute. Did you get to actually sort of handle them? No. Was it like a meet a meerkat experience? I did not meet a meerkat. I oh. just looked at them through glass. Ah, oh, fair enough. That'll do. <laughs> well, I had a brush with wildlife, but it wasn't <laughs> quite as nice. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and last week I found a spider in my ear. The fucking horror. Jesus fucking Christ, no. No. I just need to point out, not the ear canal, the in here, up here, in the top bit. Hannah, there is no acceptable part of the ear in which to find a spider. No, I know, I know, but uh, I I mean, I'm not concerned that it's like... (laughs) Laid eggs in your brain. Yeah. How big was it? It must have been quite small. It was. It was about the size of a 5p, but again, that doesn't really mitigate the circumstance for me. Yeah. In the, like, fold of your ear? In that area. Like, yeah, in that top bit there. I was taking some greenery to the tip, and I I was driving, and I thought, what is that? And I kept flicking, like, you know, what is that? 
And then when I pulled up at some lights, I like looked in and I could see this black thing and I grabbed it and it was a spider. And then when I got to the tip outside, it was absolutely hailing it down. But I was thinking it's washing the spider memory off the spider memory yeah. from my ear yeah <laughs> my friend used to sleep with a glass of water by her bed and one night mm. she went to drink from it and there was a spider the whole diameter of the glass just across it as she lifted it up she just came eyes to many eyes with a spider at least she saw it yeah so i heard that um this might be another thing that is a lie about spiders like is conkers. it something to do with if you meet a spider that looks exactly the same as you? <laughs> yeah you die dead, it's yeah. really weird I, apparently they're attracted to your like the moisture from your breath yeah specifically you is, hannah jen's directing this at you your absolutely. moisture from your breath one's moisture from one's breath and so you want to keep a little bowl of water or something knocking around because it will um that's that's where they'll go to instead of your mouth don't we just accidentally eat like eight spiders in our eight lifetime a year. or something a year i thought it was eight a year thought a lifetime was enough they more than enough in fairness yeah <laughs> i think the conquer thing is a lie though but um we are obviously hurtling towards spider season so um hannah watch yeah. out those ears maybe start keeping a conquer in your other ear yeah. <laughs> can i just say you said eight was was eight too many uh but there is a, an exception to that of course if you have swallowed a fly yes of, of course, course of course mm. i always struggle when i get to the cow though <laughs> just trying yeah. to ram a cow in don't like that. It it bothers me. Don't judge women on what they eat. That's what I'm taking <laughs> from it. I'm Jen Offord. And yes, you're right, Hannah. Succession is rather compelling, isn't it? <laughs> yes. It's Where so are you? I think I've just finished episode two of the second series. I've like done it in a week, basically. The most compelling thing about it is that they're all so awful. You're like, ooh, who's playing who? <laughs> no spoilers. Later on, I am chatting grief, loss, mental health and ice cream with the Fandango Kid as she's taking all of that and more on the road with her new project, Fandango Whip. I think I watched a film called that once. I talk talk to Diane Appleyard from the National Allotment Society about why women are really digging allotments. Get out. Get out. (laughs) I like that. I think that's good. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm talking about the latest Olympics action. And in Rated or Dated, we try not to get too distracted by Grandpa Joe's coke nail as we watch 1971's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. All right, I know, I know. Jack Albertson played bluegrass banjo, but that nail is still minging. (laughs) But first, Grant Shapps does something sort of positive, shocker. (laughs) It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, living in a world where Boris Johnson is reproducing faster than a wet gremlin. Sigh. Oh, so awful. So horrible. Who keeps letting him fuck them? It doesn't make sense. (laughs) And so the Windrush scandal rumbles on, or indeed roars, as seen at the weekend when hundreds of people gathered in Brixton, South London, to demand reparations and restored citizenship for the generation of people and their descendants who have been royally fucked over by the Home Office. The government, as you probably know, has since apologised for the 2018 life-destroying shambles, so sorry doesn't seem to be the hardest word for them. Looking like they mean it, however, appears to be proving it impossible. As for learning from mistakes, nah, (laughs) get out of here. Despite a 2020 inquiry called the Windrush Lessons Learned Review, in which the author, Wendy Williams, (laughs) 
it's in there in the fucking right? title. <laughs> Warned there was a, quote, grave risk of similar failings happening again if the government failed to implement the inquiry's recommendations. Similar failings are, wait for it, already happening again. And so, here we are. Windrush still not sorted and the Home Office now seemingly in breach of the Brexit withdrawal agreement as European citizens who have applied for settled status and can prove so are being served removal directions, they're being detained and threatened with deportation. Now, ministers have repeatedly promised that anyone who had applied by the 30th of June deadline would have their existing rights protected while their case was heard. And yet, as Mark Townsend reported for The Observer, Pierre Maclouf, legal director of the legal charity Bail for Immigration Detainees, said, It seems that the Home Office has pre-decided the fate of certain EU nationals, perhaps believing that they are easy to remove. But in its drive to deport more people, it is sidestepping legal requirements and procedures. Whether this is due to administrative or willful neglect may be unclear, but by ignoring the legal steps that EU nationals have undertaken to assert their rights, the UK is in breach of its duties under the withdrawal agreement. So, despite a number of cases that the Observer mentions in its article having been contested by the Home Office in immigration tribunals, as recently as last Friday the 30th of July, the Home Office still rejected the claim as completely baseless, adding... The Observer had failed to provide any proof whatsoever that detention or removal directions are being served to those with EU SS settlement scheme status. OK, so that's all still up in the air. But even without these alleged breaches of the withdrawal agreement, the scheme has caused stress and pain for many EU nationals settled in the UK. Dundee's The Courier spoke to 77-year-old Irina Yendryka, one of Britain's last Holocaust survivors, who was liberated from a death camp where she was born and has lived in the UK since she was four. And now, despite hitting the June 30th deadline, Yendryka is scared she may be deported in the post-Brexit EU settlement scheme. Yeah, throw her out. Fuck, I know, right? Throw her out. 70 years, what's that? Nothing. This whole experience has left me feeling drained like a wrung-out towel, she said. I was asked question after question about my life and my work. At one point, someone said I could in fact be deported. This is the sort of stuff I've been bombarded with. I've lived here for 73 years. Just in case you do need a reminder, Boris Johnson, in between getting people pregnant, promised <laughs> EU citizens that they would get automatic leave to remain. But Captain Footbumble Reverse Ferret very much appears to have struck again. We need to speak to the three million again, don't we? Definitely. So let's talk about Scarlett Johansson suing Disney for breach of contract. Unless you're a recent arrival to Earth, you'll have heard of Black Widow, the latest instalment in what's known as the Marvel Cinematic Universe, released in June after being pushed back from its original May 2020 release date. Johansson and her agents organised what is sometimes called a back-end deal, meaning her pay was linked to the box office takings. However, last week it was announced the actor was suing Disney after Black Widow was released simultaneously in cinemas and on Disney+, Plus, the premier streaming service, which has inarguably affected box office receipts <laughs> and therefore her earnings. Yeah, of course. Johansson said she was promised by Marvel Studios, which is owned by Disney, that Black Widow would be a, quote, theatrical release. And she had understood this to mean some time would pass before it would be streamed, a period that has traditionally lasted 90 days. So, how has Disney responded? Well, pretty appallingly. Here's the statement it put out. 
quote, there is no merit whatsoever. To... You should try and imagine Mickey Mouse saying this. Pluto, Pluto, there is no merit whatsoever to this violin. <laughs> well done. <laughs> the lawsuit, it continued, is especially sad and distressing in its callous disregard for the horrific and prolonged global effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. They added that Johansson had earned $20 million, which is around £14.3 million, to date for the film. Now, I don't know about you, but while waving your hand around and saying, because this might be a sufficient excuse for a lot of things in the last 18 months, mm-hmm. and Christ knows we've used it a lot, yep. suggesting you can't be expected to keep a contract is one thing. Calling the actor callous is, well, I'm just going to say, fucking outrageous. Agreed. Is $20 million enough to be paid for a film? I'd argue it's enough to be paid for anything. Is that the point? No. If a deal was made, a deal should be honoured, especially if you're one of the best known companies in the world. Mm-hmm. I just want to add one more thing, and this is it. While Johansson is getting a lot of support on social media, a lot of tweets are prefaced with, quote, I've got a lot of problems with Johansson, but... I'm guessing it's because the actor has repeatedly stood her ground and fought her corner in the face of some very public criticism. If she hadn't, it's unlikely she'd be taking Disney on now, which is something worth remembering next time she does something you don't like. Me, I admire her tits of steel also her actual tits Mm -hmm. and i hope she wins a woman who knows her worth deserves to absolutely oh well here's some uncharacteristically good news for some anyway from transport secretary grant shapps shut up i know i know uh actually grant shapps is always good news for me because every time i see him i laugh so um (laughs) last week it was announced the highway code is to be amended to prioritize pedestrians Changes announced to the code following consultation see the creation of a new road user hierarchy with pedestrians put at the very top. In fact, the hierarchy gives greater responsibility to those who can do the greatest harm to reduce the danger that they pose to others. Now, this is very good news, especially if you're a pedestrian who is fucked off with the 8,000% increase, and that's just, that's an estimate, by the way, (laughs) in people cycling on the pavements since they took to their bikes during lockdown. And I've said it on Twitter, and I'll say it again now, if you are old enough to cycle without adult supervision, you are old enough to cycle on the goddamn road. Second it. But yes, I understand, as a cyclist myself, the lack of provision of safe spaces for cyclists. Well then, this is good news for you too, my lycra-clad friend, because HGV drivers will, in turn, have greater responsibility to not run you over. So, you can get off the pavement now, please. Please, for the love of fuck, (laughs) get off the pavement. Bad news for road haulage and freight companies, i.e. HGV drivers, and other drivers who responded to the government's consultation saying the new rules would lead to cyclists and pedestrians, this is a quote from the government's uh, summary of the consultation, taking greater risks when using the roads, believing that the onus for their safety rests with others. Now, guys, how are you going to be celebrating this news? Because I personally am going to spend a day cycling into the blind spots of every Hackney Council bin collection vehicle that I can find. You guys going to do the same, yeah? I'm not yeah. going to wait for the little green man. <laughs> Fuck him. <laughs> I'm out of here. 
Uh, yeah, great. Well done, guys. Uh, however, good news for all of us. The hierarchy also applies to e-scooters. Oh, sorry. Do you mean the vehicle of Satan? <laughs> <laughs> the, the very same. The new most hated wheels on the road slash pavement. Bad news for us all. Not to shit on this delightful, harmonious picnic. It is actually already illegal to cycle on the pavement or to use a privately owned e-scooter on a public highway. So, government, time to start adequately funding the police so that they can actually enforce these laws, innit? Mm. Yeah. Mickey will know this because she's been to visit me sometimes since this. All this. Using the Disney all this. Histon Road, which is the main one of the main roads into Cambridge, which is the road into my end, has been shut for 18 months because they're putting cycle lanes in. Now, it is a really tight road. So what they've done to put cycle lanes in is essentially steal some of the pavement and quite a lot of the pavement. And there are bits of the pavement there now, probably literally the width of a buggy. If you've got a double buggy, you can't go down that pavement. And if you've got a buggy and a kid that you need to hold the hand of, you can't walk down that pavement. So although I like the idea of this, and I do think that like pedestrians should be prioritised, I genuinely think that they are treated like the scum of the fucking earth, people who walk. Like literally, our road is, uh, the bit that we have to walk on is getting slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. And I, it's great to have cycle lanes so it's safe for cyclists, but it's so badly thought out when basically you have to, if you want to walk, walk faster than someone else, you have to walk into the road to get past them teeny tiny sliver of a silver yeah. line in there hannah is that with that the more kids boris johnson has the less uh, likely he is to be on <laughs> cambridge's streets it's a boon for you would anyone like more good news what seriously yes okay well i'm delighted to share the news that the royal national lifeboat institution was turning that frown upside down last week after nigel farage fucked with the wrong boaty mclifesavers <laughs> After a barrage of shite. I think that's a farage of shite, isn't it? I know. I tried to look for a word other than barrage, but it didn't It didn't come to me. Um, so, yeah, a farage of shite, if you will, from right-wing nitwits, referring to the charity as a taxi service for illegal trafficking gangs. Yeah. Said nitwits wanted to know why the RNLI were bothering to save the lives of migrants crossing the English Channel. And the clue is very much in the name there, you absolutely preposterous cunts. Mm -hmm. They had a nitwit shit fit. <laughs> I think we can safely say, however, that this most recent attempt to whip the public into a frenzy over absolutely fucking nothing backfired spectacularly. 93% of the charity's income comes from donations, so they would have been delighted, I'm sure, to receive £200,000 in public donations over the 24 hours that followed, which is apparently an increase of 2,800% from its typical daily haul. But actually, a slightly surprising thing that I learnt while uh, looking into this is that a daily haul is £7,000. That's quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah, well, they, they don't pay wages. I mean, they are run on an absolute freaking shoestring. Mm. I'm not saying don't keep giving them. Keep giving them £7,000 because they're doing a lovely job and you might need them one day and then you won't be asking, you know, questioning their fucking moral compass, will you? So, there we go. Not that you are, probably, if you're listening to this, in, in all likelihood. I'll shut up Hannah, now. save Jen. She's drowning. More news next week. <laughs> hey... 
Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where, yeah, I am still wanging on about sexism at the Olympics. So given women still predominantly do the majority of childcare, including it's very... Claire. Childcare, yeah, <laughs> that's what they call it. Uh, still predominantly do the majority of childcare, including, it's worth noting, the whole gestating and birthing of future generations. It remains baffling that corporate sponsors of female athletes refuse to take this into consideration. I say baffling. Obviously, I dream of a day when it's baffling instead of par for the fucking course. Getting pregnant is a kiss of death for a female athlete, said Nike-sponsored runner Phoebe Wright in a 2019 New York Times expose. There's no way I'd tell Nike if I were pregnant. Which also explains why Olympian Cara Goucher scheduled a half marathon just three months after she had her son, because Nike would not pay her until she started racing again. When her son became dangerously ill, she had to leave him in hospital to go and train for the race that she hoped would restart her pay. Also in that 2019 New York Times piece, Alison Felix, the most decorated track and field Olympian in history, told how she tried to push back against Nike's policy of cutting female athletes' pay during and after pregnancy. When Felix asked Nike to guarantee that she wouldn't be punished if she didn't perform at her best in the months surrounding childbirth, the contract negotiations ground to a standstill. Bastards. And so Felix, who I am going to call a bona fide hero. Too fucking right. Mm -hmm. She stepped up where a massive corporation would not. And in partnership with her primary sponsor, Athleta, and the Women's Sports Foundation, launched a $200,000 grant aimed at covering childcare and childcare costs for <laughs> professional athletes competing during 2021. Nine athletes have already been chosen, each of whom will receive $10,000. Athletes from all sports can apply for a $10,000 grant until August the 31st and all recipients will be announced in October. And because most athletes at the Olympics just don't have big sponsorship deals, a grant like this can make a massive difference. Sisters doing it for themselves and others. I'm just going to make the heart shape with my hands. The amount of money that goes into organising and staging an event such as the Olympics, because it is truly like a Herculean fucking effort, right, to pull off something that big. Ah, uh, the word's Olympian, Jen. <laughs> exactly, Hannah, exactly. But yeah, like, it's it's massive. All that money going into it, fucking give some to the fucking mums. Like, what, what are you doing? Just give them some fucking money. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by the Fandango Kid. That's right, you heard me, the Fandango Kid, aka artist Annie Nicholson. Annie, hello. Hi. <laughs> hello. You've got to tell me about that incredible name. Where does the Fandango Kid come from? It's a kind of combination of things. My mum, when I was a kid, used to call me Annie Fandango, and then I remember watching this a Western film called The Durango Kid, and I was graduating, I was saying to my parents, oh, I don't know, like, maybe I should have, like, an alter ego, like an alias, you know, and they came up with it one night, just having dinner together, and no one thought it would stick, and it kind of did, so... <laughs> A little combination. I feel like it should be pretty hard to be anything but upbeat when you're called the Fandango Kid. <laughs> it's quite nice to have a bit of separation, honestly, between my actual name and my identity and the work because a lot of it is quite heavy. Well, you know, it shouldn't be necessarily heavy, but a lot of the themes are heavy involving grief and, you know, a lot of taboos. So it's nice to have that distance. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you've touched on it there. Mental health and ensuring conversations around it happen has been central to all of your work. Mm, Yeah. I mean, a lot of the mental health related content has been linked to my own journey of navigating trauma and grief and loss. I sort of started to work quite a lot in the sphere of mental health more generally, having come through that phase of well having come through a lot of trauma and lots of grief myself and becoming quite familiar with mental health charities and young people's groups that were working in mental health and associated trauma so yeah it's something that's really kind of dominated a big part of my work and really wanted to create a platform to open up these conversations and all their nuances with young people particularly um, because I've experienced being a young person and not having these outlets really mm-hmm. at the time like 10 years ago it was you know the conversations around mental health and the dialogue was much more limited and now it's these conversations are happening in abundance but still I think maybe not as carefully as maybe they should be some of them I definitely wanted to ask you about that because these days we're constantly told it's okay to to not be okay but that does quite often seem to come with the caveat or as long as it doesn't mean that we have to change our expectations of what you're capable of obviously and I Mm. guess a a very current example of that is Simone Biles who did exactly Mm. the right thing for her mental and physical health in dropping out but she is still getting a lot of shit for it does it sometimes feel like we've gone two steps forward one step back I just think you know now we're all talking but um, you know, we're all starting to talk about experiences of mental health and trauma and everything that we've been through collectively and individually in the last year. But I was just reading an article, a really interesting article this morning in The Guardian about about this and this like, abundance of of dialogue around mental health trauma. You know, this how we really freely use language now, like triggering and terms involving trauma without too much substance necessarily backing that up and you know like in the case of you know what's happened with the olympics at the moment i think this case is really important because if you were sort of saying oh look i don't know i've broken my leg or something it would be a physical kind of ailment would be treated with sort of respect for the time that it takes to heal and there's still so many gray areas involving someone's mental health and how we handle that and how we respond to that and some of the responses are just so shocking you know it takes so much courage to be able to say I'm not managing this I'm actually going to say no to this and saying no to you know being overburdened is is huge particularly with these particular stakes and I don't know I think yes there's a lot going on now and a lot of platforms to kind of discuss our mental health but I'm not entirely convinced that all of them are underpinned by being able to guarantee a safe space I think when you're talking about someone's mental health and someone's experiences of trauma you need a number of trusted voices to be able to hold space um, for other people and even as an artist that's not something that I can guarantee because I'm not a therapist I'm not trained in psychotherapy this is something that is a collective act you know and I think a lot of conversations now around mental health are also really connected to this idea of sort of pushing forward and really linked to the individual and capitalism and just carry on and pushing forward and all this stuff about hustling and constantly working which is just so 
not the essence of mental health. <laughs> yeah. I also read the Rhiannon and Lucy Cosler article in The Guardian and it's excellent. And I think just to add to what you've said there, and as someone who has suffered on and off with depression since I was very little, I feel like people know the words now, that the words that they're supposed to say, but there's still a lack of understanding and there's still an emphasis on get better rather than just take your time, do what you need to do. Getting better isn't a quick fix. No. And telling people, you know, this sort of awful saccharine kind of what I would call like toxically positive responses, like throwing a smile on things or just pushing forward, being resilient. You know, resilience is, is also really non-linear and really um, nuanced and complex as well. You know, is it actually being resilient to say, I'm just going to push on forward even though I'm really falling apart inside? Or is it more of an act of self-care to just say, you know what, I'm just going to actually rest and stay in bed and I'm going to say no to this and I'm going to ask for I don't know more time for this or I just think it isn't as straightforward as just pushing forward and I think you're right with all of this terminology it needs to be underpinned by a number of sort of trusted kind of voices I don't think this is something that we can achieve alone I think there's a real difference also it's important to say in sharing your experience of trauma and being someone that people go to as a source of of catharsis or therapy I think it's really important if you've experienced trauma to I'm always really clear about being non-prescriptive you know this is one experience but even if someone's had an almost identical experience to mine in terms of grief it will never be the same you know our family structures and everything we come from is always very unique to the individual and I don't think I think you can share experience but I don't think you can ever guarantee a safe space for someone if you're not working professionally in psychotherapy. So let's talk about how ice cream could be helpful in this situation. Fandango Whip is your latest art project and it is a corker I just I loved it I read about it and I was like I need to talk to this woman. I would like the info and a flake please. (laughs) yeah so it's I mean the idea behind this is essentially you know it is an art project it's an extension of my practice around working with communities talking about mental health talking about grief talking about everything we've lost in this past year and that doesn't need to you know necessarily be physical loss it can also be loss of lifestyle you know loss of getting up and going to meetings face to face with people loss of just ways of living and communities and you know I think we've all lost something basically you know in in this year and the idea of the ice cream is that it's kind of joyful it's ageless it's classes people can also literally just come and have an ice cream and a really basic chat about some of the things that culturally we tend to love like the weather and driving routes and things like that which I feel (laughs) like it all codes to kind of get deeper into actually talking about more important things um, and people do tend to do that they come and they have really kind of peripheral sort of surface chats and then they really the ones who say they don't want to stay and they don't want to talk too much are always the ones who end up staying and talking loads and I think it's really interesting to have ice cream as a sort of as a, a sort of symbol to open up all kinds of conversations that can be really complex and that's sort of what it's been and it's quite comforting and not pressurized for people to think all right I'm feeling an ice cream there's no pressure on me to come to an actual workshop and have to talk about painful experiences but it's a sort of way in and I think a lot of people have found that quite comforting quite helpful 
Yeah, yeah, I love it. And Fandango Whip's tagline is serving up taboo emotions and you're offering ice cream, chalk ices and existential despair. Count me in. Um, This is a particularly personal project for you, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, all of the work, really, that I've been doing, most of the work I've been doing over the last 10 years has been very much guided by wanting to, like I say, you know, create platforms for dialogue um and almost you know it's now been 10 years or coming up it's 10 years this year since I lost most of my family in an accident in New York and I was like 27 then and it just totally transformed my life I was just graduating from LCC I, well, I had just graduated it just catapulted me into a whole different way of thinking and working I was always making work about the human condition but this was then it just that that grief was at the forefront of my mind and I actually couldn't make any work for quite a long time and eventually started to sort of think okay there really aren't any outlets for young people which you know I was sort of focused on then to share grief to talk about grief to talk about trauma to talk about yeah this very non-linear experience and not really offer solutions but to create I don't think you ever can but to create a safe for people as much as possible to come and share their experiences so to facilitate conversations that might be difficult this now it's sort of 10 years on this is yeah it's, it's I'm really quite happy with how it's all unfolding because it's very much led by the people that come and have a chat and that's that's really feels, I'm really you know happy to try and create that kind of space for people so you made your first stop with Fandango Whip at Latitude Festival a couple of weekends ago. What was the response like? It was really varied. I mean, no one had a sort of negative response. On the whole, people were really kind of into it. They were into coming to have an ice cream. The ice cream just went like really quick. Um, <laughs> lo- loads of great chats and from sort of surface level to much sort of deeper chats. We also ran workshops around dancing as a kind of tool for coping with grief and quite music related stuff because I've done a lot around that as a way of dealing with trauma but some people who obviously you know we've all been really isolated this year some people particularly maybe more than others were sort of coming to the project asking a whole bunch of questions and then becoming quite defensive around opening up conversations on a personal level which I've seen throughout you know the last 10 years of the work that I've done people really have often really 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 wanted to talk and I think there's quite a lot of fear around not having the right language to do that which maybe younger generations have with a bit more fluidity I think it's still valid it's still a sort of valid part of an experience to come and ask questions around it whether you share your own stuff or not it may still change the patterns of thinking and but yeah, people access things very differently. You know, it's interesting being amongst the British public again because we've yes. all been very cut off from each other. It's very hard to be vulnerable. And we've had a year of feeling incredibly mm. vulnerable. So I imagine, you know, we're British, put it back in its box, never look at it again. That seems to be the most sensible way to treat it. And of course, it does us no good. So I understand why people were maybe a bit defensive. But also, I wondered how you felt because. Fandango Whip's got a focus on COVID and lockdown-related grief and loss. So how did it feel when it were still very much in the eye of the storm to be at a fairly crowded festival? 
Yeah, um, we felt pretty overwhelmed at times by that. We very much were like, okay, we're here to talk about this project and kind of this is a work thing. And we did try to sort of dip in here and there to some of the things that we wanted to see that were live. And some things just felt too overwhelming. And I think for many people, this is, you know, we are, we need to reemerge ourselves into the world very slowly. I think this felt like you know I've only been around six people and all of a sudden I'm around 45,000 people Mm -hmm. it was just like it was it was a lot I think you know I knew things to be quite slow um but some people they were double vaccinated and absolutely sort of throwing themselves into all of these experiences and I think it's different for everybody I'm quite a bit more nervous about that on many levels physically socially you know yeah I feel the same and I don't know about you but I was kind of surprised at how nervous I have been about reimmersing myself into social situations me too yeah me too I think you know we kind of during the lockdown I longed particularly to go for a dance and things and I was like trying to do that at home and I did that when I was grieving a lot dancing alone and stuff and I was quite actually very familiar with lockdown to actually early periods of grief and I really longed for being in a club and stuff with people but now I'm really not sure if I'm if now it's possible it's weird isn't it how you know I'm not sure if I'm ready to sort of because it is you know the risks are still very real so it's tricky when you know that mentally really helpful and healing and necessary to be around other people um and then there's a virus looming where you also know that physically that's quite threatening to you it's very Mm -hmm. confusing and conflicting in the brain I think yeah I think obviously you we can't be prescriptive about any mental health illness or any grief because as you mentioned earlier it's incredibly subjective but that take your own time choose your own path is probably the most general advice that would work for most people is don't mm. feel the pressure from other people try to block that out you've got to do it mm. in your own time and in your own ways I mean obviously I don't want to always told to not say too much of the political stuff but I think we haven't had guidance here and oh you can say as much of the political stuff as you want on here because we'll have <laughs> okay, already good. slagged them off <laughs> good okay, yeah because you know I think we've been so we're just so lucky in kind of you know trusted advice and guidance and a really clear path politically as to how to navigate this that I think we've all had to really take our own basically trust ourselves and and people who are in charge are, are clearly not to be trusted and so we've we've all had to find our own path anyway and so I think during the pandemic as it's gone on for many people there's been this this these moments of okay there's, there's obviously this very real physical danger but also my mental health needs to have I need to go and be with someone and you know and have a chat and have a walk or do whatever it sort of feels safe for me you know regardless of not regardless of what I'm being told by the government but there's so many kind of ebbs and flows and so much back and forth I think because of the system being so fragile and just so all over the place and so disjointed we've had to find our own ways of navigating this I think for people who've been entirely alone during this going out and having spending some time with another person look we cannot be judgmental about too many things that our basic health needs Yep, totally agree with you. So Annie, I know that you and the van, you and Fandango Whip are going to go and visit some more places. But where can people find out what you and Fandango Whip are up to, please? 
we're kind of announcing this as and when the commissions come up because we don't want to kind of over promise things but we will be running this until october um kind of early part of october and the next one is going to be at design museum on the 7th of august so that's our next one we'll announce it a few days beforehand and it's a saturday we'll be there handing out ice cream and then we've got some tentative plans for other galleries around the uk and and the, and the city and a few residencies coming up so i will let you know as as they come up but design museum is the next one and do you have socials where people can make sure they're kept up to date with the announcements yeah so i, I put everything on my instagram fandango kids so all the kind of tour dates and things will go on there hopefully if you don't catch me for an ice cream you'll catch something else that is going on in terms of kind of grief and mental health over the next few months I think more and more now people are now starting to unpack a lot of what's gone on in this sort of time of hardcore kind of survival that we've gone through in the early part of the lockdown and the pandemic when just getting through sort of day-to-day experiences and it, it was really difficult to sort of think beyond how we were actually coping mentally we're just sort of getting up and trying to get through the days and adjust to this kind of weird new tempo and I think now people have a bit more time to mentally sort of open up and think about what we've all been through and and some of these terrible circumstances you know I remember London streets just hearing nothing on the streets at night other than ambulances and we've been through a lot together well I will raise an ice cream to you and your terrific work thank you so much for sparing some time to chat with me oh thank you thank you so much it's been a pleasure So, want to know what's coming up in the next few weeks and months in Standard Issue? I'm going to take that as a yes. In this week's Coming Chops, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Carol Hoven about her new book, Testosterone, the story of the hormone that dominates and divides us, which is super interesting and covers a lot of complex and controversial topics. Next week, I'm also chatting to Martha Howe Douglas about the new series of Ghosts. Hooray! Plus, coming soon, I'm going to be talking to Tulip Sadiq about the case of Nazarene Sagari Radcliffe and to 80s icons Pepsi and Shirley about their new book and, well, about being 80s icons. Never let it be said that we don't offer variety. Jen's going to be chatting to journalist Sophie Hayward about her excellent memoir, The Hungover Games, as well as comedian and writer Shappy Corsandi about her first foray into young adult fiction. She'll also be talking to award-winning journalist and writer Simon Murr about the best, most awful job and maternal rage. And Mick, what's she been up to? Well, she's been having a chinwag with writer Amanda Prowse about the art of regret and how to get positive value from a negative emotion. She's also had a natter with actor Pandora Collin about theatre over the last year, roles for women of a certain age, and given Pandora was in Chernobyl, what it feels like to be in incredible telly. And our resident music guru, Liz Buckley, will be singing Billy Holiday's praises, and rightly so. Plus, we'll be putting a lot of much-beloved films through the rated or dated grinder, including The Commitments, Aliens, Citizen Kane, and A Streetcar Named Desire. Yes, that is a whole lot to look forward to. And to save me having to keep repeating this, the easiest way to make sure you don't miss a thing is to subscribe to Standard Issue wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. Here endeth the lesson.
Hi, I am joined by the National Allotment Society's Diane Appleyard. I've written here from lovely Bristol, but you're not actually in lovely Bristol today. You're in lovely Hebden Bridge. I am, yes. So you won't be able to hear me budgies today. (laughs) We've had a lot of background animal, children, building, gardening noise in our podcast in the last year. Okay, so I found out something interesting from you, actually. So I'm going to be telling you something that you told me. Allotments long believed to be the preserve of men, but in fact... Almost 64% of allotments in London and 50% nationally are rented by women. Hooray. That's true. When did this change happen, Diane, and why do you think that's come about? I think it's happened gradually over the last 15 to 20 years. About 20 years ago, there was a project called the Allotments Regeneration Initiative when a lot of money was fed into improving sites and making them more accessible. So toilets were installed in quite a lot and the sort of culture of allotments gradually changed along with people getting interested in eating food that hasn't had chemicals sprayed on it. It's a twofold thing, the interest from women and the culture of allotments changing at the same time. Yeah, that issue about toilets is actually incredibly important and so many topics. And yeah, yeah, we spoke to some archaeologists about, you know, the problems for women in archaeology and toilets came up in that. Yeah, yeah. I can believe, yeah. Yeah, facilities. Now, you are an allotment holder. How long have you had one, Diane? I've had an allotment since 2009. I've got a plot on a site in Bristol with the most amazing view Oh, I bet. During lockdown, Boris Johnson did actually say at one point allotment holders were allowed to continue to go to their allotments, which I think was twofold important. It was actually Michael Gove, and I would have never believed I'd feel like kissing Michael Gove. (laughs) Well, he's available now, Diane. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is important for two reasons. Number one, it's important because people have invested time and energy into stuff and, you know, why would why would you let food go to waste at a time yeah, when there was yeah. supermarket panic? But also because gardening in general is proven to be good for your physical health and for your mental health. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you actually get out of your allotment? For me, at the end of the day, I work from home, so at the end of the day, being able to pop up there and just be in a green space in the open because I live on a terrace street which is quite built up and have just relaxed contact with other people who've got similar interests, have a chat. Growing the food isn't the most important thing. It's about having that space that's mine. I can remember the first time I went up to the allotment and I looked at this little scruffy square piece of land covered in black plastic of blackthorn trees growing up through the middle of it and I didn't care because it was mine you know I had that space to look after so that's still my main the main priority for me is that space that's mine the contact with other people and then the sense of achievement I get from growing my own food and experimenting and trying new things I'm always changing it. You know, I always do something a little bit different every year. Were you a gardener before you started or did you really just hit the ground running? I was a gardener, yeah. I'd been gardening a long time and was really interested in gardening. But growing fruit and vegetables is a bit of a shock because it is quite 
different. I think you can be quite a competent gardener and then start growing veg and feel a bit thrown. They've got different needs. You do really have to learn a lot to grow successfully. I have a gooseberry bush in my back garden that I planted like three years ago. And this year I got gooseberries on it for the first time. And it was preposterously exciting, like genuinely. Mm, I know. (laughs) Particularly because gooseberries are actually quite hard to find in shops, which Mm, is why I specifically went for gooseberries. They didn't even make it into the kitchen. I was just eating them off the bush. It was just tremendous. Now, I wanted to ask you about my mum's friend, Sheila. Hello, Sheila, if you're listening. Mm. Uh, Avid gardener, long-time allotment holder. The allotments that she has are currently under threat. So I wanted to ask you, you know, from your position as the National Allotment Society, how common is this? With Sheila's allotment, it's because the land is of value for building houses and it doesn't have whatever protection it it would need to have in order for it to. So I was just wondering how common given, you know, prime real estate in in the middle of cities is just sitting there. Is that something you're seeing commonly? It's not that common. It does happen. It's rare for it to happen to a thriving site. Allotments have got different classifications and there are private allotments. They tend to be owned by the church or private landowners. They don't have that protection. Then you've got temporary allotments, which is where councils of stockpiled land for different purposes like housing or cemeteries and then finally they want to use the land for its initial purpose it might have been been used for allotment for 100 years Mm. but legally they can still take the land as a society we would love them to start trying to look at alternatives to that and trying to you know to use different land because there is a big, you know, there's massive waiting lists at the moment. And then there are the allotments that are protected, but they can still get moved. I mean, the council still, even if they do take the land, they're still under an obligation to provide sufficient allotments. But you'll find that most plot holders who've been on the plot for a while don't want to go. Mm. They've got (laughs) that feeling, that territorial feeling I was talking about earlier, you know, this bit of... uh, then they've spent time and money and love in that they don't want to go to another one. They, yeah. they want that plot they've had for a while. But it's not that common. It does happen, but we don't deal with that many cases per per year. If somebody is in that situation, would the advice be to get in touch with you because you will be able to help them? We'll be able to advise them. Mm. If they're statutory, we have to be consulted. So whoever wants to get rid of the land has to consult ourselves. If it's a temporary site, we can give them some support, suggest some campaigning ideas or even talk to whoever the landlord is to try and explore if there's other other options. If you look at the planning, you know, the local plan, you might be able to find some little loopholes and things in there. I can think of a church a site where... They've managed to put this off, you know, for quite for quite some time. Mm. Looking at the local plan and working on the argument through that. Yeah, do you know I can remember back when the Olympics were the twenty twelve mm. Olympics. Yeah, watching yeah. A, a documentary on on the BBC about sort of the cost 
of building this huge thing in the middle of East London to certain individual groups. And one of those groups was uh, allotment holders. The allotment, yeah. Yeah, that had lost their land, which is very sad. And you're up in Hebden Bridge, and we were just talking earlier about flooding. And, you know, of course, um, concrete is not good. Allotments are great. They are soaking up that water. Um, They are. Next week, it is allotment week. It's National Allotments Week. Yes. So can you tell me what sort of thing goes on in National Allotments Week? And if people are interested in an allotment, where they can find out maybe someone that they could talk to who has one that could give them the, uh, the rundown. This year we've got a theme called Plotting for the Future. And that's just highlighting some of the things, the flooding issue, benefits that allotments have. So there's environmental benefits. Lots of plot holders conserve rainwater. They're economical with resources. They practice composting, which cuts down on peat use that recycles or the waste in the allotment doesn't go to the tip. It's recycled and fed back into the soil because they're growing their own food there's less food miles you know for food to be transported around and one of the things that we're doing is we've got a series of online talks that are advertised on our website so people can register to listen and let me see if I can remember no dig on a Monday composting on Tuesday organic growing on the Wednesday Thursday is water harvesting and Friday's allotments on a shoestring from our president Phil Gomesel. Great. There'll be a little Q&A at the end of them. Then the other thing that usually happens but it's limited this year we encourage people to open up their sites and have events and open days. We didn't have any last year because of the pandemic. Oh I think there was one that I knew of. There is a handful and there's a little PDF you can look at on our website. That's to give people who haven't got an allotment the chance to have a look round and talk to plot holders. I don't have an allotment. I do have uh, a garden. And I would say to anyone, for the love of God, get a water bath. I water my garden morning, noon and night. And I have, uh, officially as in, I uh, I actually spoke to Cambridge Water, which is uh, where I get my water from. I have one of the lowest bills. Um, I'm in the top 10% or would be technically the bottom 10% of water usage. And yet I use a lot of water and that all comes from my water butts. Yeah, they're fantastic. Everything I do the garden with. And I've got so much outside that I actually water my houseplants inside with the water that comes out of the the water butt. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we encourage people to do is to, oh, if if they're allowed sheds on their allotments, to always have a water butt coming off both sides of the shed yeah if they can if they can do yeah. it on an allotment side the biggest bill is usually the water for, um, wow associations and councils yeah yeah now while i have you i am going to ask a, an utterly selfish question that maybe isn't relevant to anyone who's listening <laughs> although i'm pretty sure it will be diane what the hell do i do about slugs and snails because I don't have an allotment, but I have tried in my garden, and every single time they are ruined. I get them all to this lovely state on my kitchen windowsill, and they go outside. How do I win this this senseless battle that I am having with snails? I mean, slugs and snails are the biggest headache, I think, for for most plot holders. Going out and collecting them is not a pleasant task, but that does help, and just put the remnants in your 
in your compost heap. There are organic slug pellets, ferric phosphate ones, but they need to be used in a very limited way because I think they, you know, they still have some effect on the on the soil, although that they're not as they're not poisonous like the the metabisulfate ones. I've seen some RHS research that advises beer traps. Do you know my nan used to use beer traps? Like the RHS research did, they looked at quite a lot of things because there's there's a lot of stuff around about copper tape and textured things like bran around your plants so that are um, wool or rough things. But that says that doesn't actually work very well. And there's other stuff you can spray on the leaves so that they don't they don't like eating them some organic ones there's no easy answer to that one shame yeah. i was really hoping you had uh, no, you had no a... if there was somebody would be making a fortune <laughs> yeah i mean just fyi to anyone who doesn't know what a beer trap is my nan's beer trap was a margarine tub that she just yeah. used to dig into the ground and fill with beer you need to leave it a lip of it up above the surface of the soil so that beetles don't fall in one last question. You have mentioned that there are queues, obviously, in a lot there of are. places. There yeah. are waiting lists. What would your advice be to people who are on that waiting list? There's not a lot you can do other than be patient and maybe be a bit flexible about where you want to go. Because one of the reasons that there are high waiting lists is you, when you're on the waiting list are on council website and you can choose which allotment site you want. So if you're prepared to travel a bit further, you might not have to wait so long. And sometimes there are plots that have got very overgrown. Nobody wants them. If you're prepared to do a bit of um, slashing and burning, you might you might be able to discover growable soil under there. You know, if you've got to wait for an allotment, try growing your own in your mm. in your back garden because there's an awful lot. You can grow in pots and um, in your bed, you know, the beds outside. Even some things look quite ornamental. You yeah. know, like French beans look beautiful. So, you know, I've been that as an annual climber, you know, you win. Yeah. Thank you ever so much for your time, Diane. This has been great. Thank you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we wipe a solitary tear from our eye as we watch from the podium the flag being raised for the People's Republic of Women's Sport. Obviously, I'm talking about the Olympics, and man, do I love them. These games have had a bit of a bad rap. According to some, no one cares about them. There aren't even any crowds, for fuck's sake. Guys, I don't know if anyone's told you there's this thing... About yay high, likes to nestle in an unwashed palm. It's called coronavirus. No? Personally, I think these Olympics have had it all. Tears, laughter, upsets, defections, a shared gold medal. I don't actually really like sharing food, so I simply can't compute this. But well done to Mutaz Essa Basham, representing Qatar, and Italy's Gianmarco Tamburi. High jump competitors, and frankly, better people than me. 
I have to say, I'm a little bit bummed out this morning to see Great Britain fail to defend their titles in the team sprint and team pursuit in track cycling. Still, I suppose the fact that Laura and Jason Kenny both take a silver medal home at least means fewer awkward silences around the dinner table. And sorry, I don't say that to be like, oh, silver medal is shit. The fact that nothing other than finishing in first place will do for a man who famously supports Arsenal is, well, it's, it's ironic, isn't it, Piers? I was also a bit sad that we didn't do very well in the rowing compared to recent years and absolutely devastated for Dina Asher-Smith and Adam Jamili, both of whom had their medal hopes in the 200 and 100 metre as well for Asher-Smith, dashed by injury. A reminder to us all that sport can just be so very cruel. We'll come back to that in a minute. A lot has been said about the rowing and I think it's important to remember that there have been some quite big funding cuts for a lot of sports. Rowing was one of them and yes, still the most funded programme of the British team, but well, then boats don't come cheap. Conversely, we've seen great success in really underfunded sports like BMX, Bethany Shriver and Kai White, both Londoners, and this may be a total coincidence because I don't think either of them went to any of these particular clubs, but BMX parks were built in the five Olympic boroughs of London 2012 as a legacy project. So my point here is that athletes need resources one way or the other. And just as an aside, the two young women picking up golds for GB in the BMX, I am so excited about all the little girls who saw Charlotte Worthington land her 360 degree backflip, the first by a female cyclist at an Olympic Games, and are now going to be hassling their parents to take them to the BMX park. For me, that is what the Olympic Games are all about. Anyway, one of the main stories to have dominated this Olympics is Simone Biles' withdrawal from the women's gymnastics team final and subsequent other events as well, citing her mental health as the reason for doing so. And she said she was experiencing the twisties, which is a phenomenon experienced by gymnasts described as a kind of mental block that causes them to lose their sense of space, etc., while they're in the air. And obviously, when you're doing the kind of leaps that gymnasts are doing at an Olympic level, that is a pretty dangerous situation to be in. Who cares, says, ugh, yes, you guessed it, Piers Morgan again, and a bunch of other fucks who coincidentally like making light of the mental health of specifically women, and more specifically women of colour. What selfish snakes with tits they all are, letting their countries and teammates down, etc, etc, etc. Perhaps he'd learnt from his mistakes a few days later when, you'll note, Morgan had rather less to say about England cricketer Ben Stokes taking a break from sport on the same grounds of mental health. It's become quite a big story, the mental health in sports piece. Tyrone Mings, bloody lovely Tyrone Mings, Aston Villa and England player, also spoke earlier this week about how his mental health, and I quote, plummeted after questions were asked of his inclusion in the England squad at this summer's Euros. And again, I have seen mostly people lauding this admission. I'm going to predictably laud this as well. I think it's a really great thing if people feel that they can be open about this stuff and it has a huge trickle-down effect on the rest of society. I'm going to go even further in the case of Biles and Naomi Osaka, who you'll remember withdrew from the French Open and also sat out Wimbledon this year for the same reasons. They have gone very much against the grain here in terms of society's expectations of women. 
Again, a lot has been said about the possible reasons for Biles' mental health problems, but what I would say is that it's kind of irrelevant and it's not really our business. I'm enjoying seeing young women putting themselves and their needs ahead of the societal expectations we as women are burdened with. To quote Melissa Phoebos' excellent line in a chat she had with Mick on the podcast recently, Are you doing some unnecessary emotional labour here? Don't. And Piers, you too, hon. The wider point here, for me, is about the mental health of athletes in general. There seems to be a lot of people coming forwards right now to chat about how bad theirs is, right? But I mean, I just don't think it can be a surprise that elite level athletes suffer from poor mental health too. If you look at the incredible amount of pressure they face, the pressure comes from the expectations of us, fans, spectators, whatever you want to call us, and our reactions to their performance. These reactions are largely emotional, and let's face it, if it goes the wrong way, they don't usually show us at our best. On top of that, the performance-based nature of their job is much more binary than it is for many of us. You got one goal, they got two, you're a failure, sorry. That's before you even consider all the many, many factors beyond their control that will impact on their performances. I don't think it's surprising that their mental health would potentially be linked to that at all. So I think it's something we need to take much more seriously and this is the start of a much needed conversation. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Umpart, lumpart, dumpity dick. What did you make us watch this week, Mick? <laughs> oh, well, umpa, lumpa, dumpity do. Have I got a creepy as fuck, morally dubious one for you? <laughs> yes, yes, I have. Because we watched 1971's children's classic, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Directed by Mel Stewart and starring Gene Wilder as the best Willy Wonka. I'm not taking any negotiations on that one. It is an adaptation of Roald Dahl's much-loved 1964 book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Dahl hated it so much he disowned it, although he is still credited with the screenplay. He got the hump about Slugworth becoming a villain, the emphasis on Wonka over Charlie, additional songs to his Umpa Lumpa compositions, and the fizzy lifting drink scene. Now, I agree with him on that last one, but we'll get there. Hmm. Okay, good. The film wasn't a huge box office success, taking just $2.1 million on its opening weekend, but it did do well with the critics, with Roger Ebert declaring it the best movie of its kind since 1939's The Wizard of Oz. Big talk, eh? Well, it's still got an 87% fresh audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, so the appeal has lasted, and indeed it's become a bit of a cult favourite, helped by it being a firm telly fixture in the 1980s, and also a special DVD release for its 30th birthday in 2001. And presumably because people needed a palate cleanser after watching Tim Burton's take on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in 2005. No thank you. I'll take my creepy without a side of Michael Jackson. Thanks very much, Johnny Depp. In 2003, Entertainment Weekly ranked it 25th in the top 50 cult movies of all time. And, more tellingly, I think, it made it into Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments, coming in at number 74 thanks to the tunnel scene, which appears to feature never-before-seen footage from Clockwork Orange. So, Jen, Hannah, had you seen it before? And if so, did it frighten or delight you as a child? I did not see it as a child. I've seen clips of it like over the years. I've blamed my parents. I haven't seen like Mary Poppins or Bedknobs and Broomsticks and all of that kind of caper. But I think it's 
fucking terrifying to be fair. <laughs> Hannah? Um, yeah, I didn't watch it as a child. I think because, I mean, I was a really, like, windy child. And I think I freaked out at the child catcher, obviously, in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And I think my parents went, yeah, she's not going to like that. <laughs> so they just didn't show it to me. Uh, I've seen it as an adult before now, but not uh, maybe once, maybe twice. I don't know. It's it's not super familiar to me. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm flabbergasted to use a, a rather dull word uh, at, at these results. But OK, so let's just run through the plot. After an opening montage of chocolate manufacturing that, thanks to the lurid Technicolor of 1970s film, looks all the world like a moving representation of the Bristol stool charts, we're off! So this film contains at least four men your mother warned you not to accept sweets from. Mm. And one of them owns a sweet shop, yeah. hiding in plain sight. Anyway, his sweet shop has the terrible business model of only stocking one manufacturer and giving everything away for free. And so he scatters confectionery on delighted kids while singing about the candy man. It's chilling. <laughs> Say his name three times in the mirror and he'll appear. Wonka. Wonka. Oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. Anyway, little Charlie Bucket's too poor for even free stuff. So he just stares forlornly through the window before heading to work. He pauses to stare again forlornly through the gates of Wonka's impenetrable chocolate factory, locked ever since Wonka's rival confectioner Slugworth tried to nick all of Wonka's glorious inventions. Suddenly, a terrifying bloke wheeling a cart of knives does a weird rhyme about rushy glens before growling, nobody ever goes in and nobody ever comes out. Again, chilling, and Charlie quite rightly legs it home. Look, Charlie Bucket, played by Peter Ostrom, is a good boy. A really good boy. Seriously, he is a smashing young man. His inherent goodness matched only by how very, very poor his family is. <laughs> mm. Charlie uses his paper and money to buy bread for the family to supplement their diet of cabbage water and gives any change to his mum. Charlie willingly spends time with his four grandparents who have shared one big bed and one chamber pot for the past 20 years and so must stink to high heaven. Oh God, it's mm. horrific. <laughs> Terrible. And he's not consumed by entitlement like all those other nasty little brats. Well, except he thinks he should find a golden ticket to Wonka's chocolate factory because he wants it so much more than everyone else. A two, Charlie. A two. He's like Greg Kinnear in Little Miss Sunshine. Yes. Yes, he is. He's not following his own nine steps. No. Because, yes, anyway, infamous recluse and confectioner extraordinaire Willy Wonka has hidden five golden tickets in chocolate bars that could be anywhere in the world. Find a golden ticket and you win access to the factory and a lifetime supply of chocolate. And in Grandpa Joe's case, he's played by Jack Albertson, by the way, the ability to dance out of bed after 20 years stuck in it. Potentially, literally stuck in it because it looks skanky. Can I just say, if I was the mum in that house, I'd be fucking livid. I've been emptying his <laughs> pot, I've been wiping his ass, I've been washing him, I've been feeding him. And that fucker could not just walk to the toilet, but he could dance. I know. It's an outrage. I, he's quite an outrageous character. I hope we talk about him more in a bit. So Charlie's entitlement bears fruit, and he does indeed, after several unsuccessful bars of chocolate, find the very last golden ticket. The other winners are Queen of Entitlement, Veruca Salt, who's worth having in there for a glorious performance by Roy Kinnear as a browbeaten enabling dad. Gluttonous Augustus Gloop, who takes his mum. Gum-chewing Violet Beauregard, who takes her car salesman dad. And TV-obsessed Mike TV, I mean fucking lazy doll, come on, whose mum accompanies him. 
Charlie, of course, takes his freshly risen and hopefully washed Grandpa Joe. Each time, however, a kid wins a ticket, a sinister fella appears and whispers in their ear. It's Slugworth asking them to nick one of Wonka's everlasting gobstoppers so he can nick the recipe. Wild as Wonka doesn't enter the narrative until nearly halfway through the film, but within moments, he's stolen the show. From when he fools the waiting crowd into thinking he has to limp along with a cane before showboating into a somersault and a grin, the film is all his. And indeed, Wilder took the role very seriously and had specific reasons for that grand entrance, saying, because from that time on, no one will know whether I am lying or telling the truth. What, what a great message for children. Mm. And so the fun and games commence, even though the passage of time has rendered the factory less the paradise of edible delights I remember as a kid and more an old warehouse full of abandoned stage props. Maybe I just need to use more of my pure imagination. Mm. Each naughty kid does its naughty thing. Greedy Augustus falls into the river of chocolate while he's trying to drink it and gets sucked up a shit pipe. Violet's gum chewing leads to her eating an unfinished experiment and blowing up like a blueberry. Veruca's foot stamping demands find her shut down the rubber chute, and Mike's TV obsession mean he's shrunk to a mini Mike. Each time a kid is naughty, Umpa Lumpers appear and mock them with a weird moralistic rhyme, the judgmental little orange shits. Although, to be fair, given they work all hours for Wonka, who may or may not be keeping them as slaves, maybe the only fun they do get is slagging off kids. Also, they've never seen anyone but Wonka before, so to be fair, they're understandably furious at these bellends coming in and fucking up their flow. Charlie's really good though, remember? He's not naughty. Which is why it is baffling that uncredited screenplay writer David Seltzer added in a scene where he too breaks the Wonka rules. Egged on by Grandpa Joe, they sneakily try the fizzy lifting drink and find themselves very close to being fan-bladed to death before burping their way back to safety. Uh, just a note, I'd have died at this point, by the way, as I cannot, despite many hours of trying, burp on demand. No, Could, me neither. You I can't can. burp on demand? No. Oh, Jen's got the skills there. Jen would have been fine. Do you want me to do it? No? Uh, yeah. 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 <sighs> awesome. Still, Charlie does pass the other test when he gives back the gobstopper. Because there are tests. Wonka may be an ageing capitalist, but he is not willing to give up control just yet. And by gifting his factory to a kid, and is the word grooming too much? Nah. Grooming that kid <laughs> to run things exactly his way, the Wonka name remains pure. Somewhat oddly, at the end, they then blast out of the roof in a glass elevator. Take that, Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Hmm. Right, so given you guys hadn't seen it time and time again like I had, I am dying to know what you thought of it. Um, Lumpa, Lumpa, Jumpity, Dedophile, why <laughs> does everyone seem like a paedophile? <laughs> um, I yeah. think that was in the original and they cut it out. <laughs> yeah, Umpa, Lumpa, Jumpity, Shite House, why do all the Umpa Lumpas sound like Mary Whitehouse? They're so judgy. I yeah. don't really like roll doll books in general because what? what yeah sorry i just think he's um sorry jen i'm just putting an advert in for somebody else to work with <laughs> i not even the twits i just think that not even george's marvelous i think medicine. that all of his books are really mean-spirited and about vengeance and like yeah i'm not really into them and i think this is the same basically the morality thing is weird as well like it's weird because he watches tv i don't know it's just the things that he picks on it's like seven for kids basically yeah <laughs> <laughs> absolutely that i mean and also it's kind of 
stupid. I mean, like the cliche is television rots your brain. In fact, I think they say it rots your brain in this. And you were like, well, just put your kids in front of more intelligent television then, maybe. Also, the fact that every moral, pretty much, apart from maybe Veruca being so fucking spoiled, but every moral is negated by the fact that they want a kid to watch this on a screen. Mm. Okay, they've made a film, so don't watch telly. Apart from this, the whole thing's about a, a chocolate factory but don't eat too many sweets don't get fat don't get fat it's so fat shaming that one Mm. is so fat shaming also like obviously violet chews gum and she chews it all the time and they're like we should only chew gum in moderation and it's just it's all bonkers and mixed messages that one is particularly stupid what is the point of it what is vulgar i think is basically what they're saying right but it's not very ladylike is it yeah it's just I think Mike TV's death is the most 1970s and indeed 60s, I guess, because that is in the original book. But it's just like he he dies. He doesn't die. He shrunk because he wanted to be the first person transported by TV. I mean, there's a future that didn't happen. I feel a bit sorry for Mike TV, to be honest, because if you're born into a family, right, called TV, like what (laughs) hope have you got? Also, he's actually realised his dream. It's not an unhappy outcome for him. He's having a lovely fucking time. He, he's done what he wanted to do. You know, he might not have a yeah. lovely time tomorrow when he realises he is that small forever, but, you know. Oh, no, they put him on the stretcher. They put him on the taffy stretcher. So in the book, you see an illustration by Quentin Blake where he comes out and he's really tall and skinny. I, I think it's location confuses me. Yes. I, I mean, and I know you don't think about that as a kid, but you're like, where is this actually set? Yeah. Because Charlie's house, they've all got like seven different accents living in that house (laughs) it's i don't i don't really understand where anybody's supposed to be from charlie's supposed to be both from england and in america simultaneously i think well it's it was filmed i believe in germany they must have been thrilled with the representation they got then no i mean i agree with you because that's one of the things i thought as well it is geographically ambiguous to say the least like the teacher's english some of the kids are English, some of the kids are American, Augustus Gloop is German, and like, what, what What? the fuck? I think it's initially in the book set in England. I mean... But, uh, again, still crazy in the film. Kevin Costner all over again, isn't it? Like, what, why is your main kid American then? Introducing, yeah. I mean, but what an introduction. He gets yeah. a lot to do. I mean, maybe, I mean, chocolate clearly has advanced somewhat because like you say, it looked horrible, that intro, but it also looked like, it also looked like a Wonka bar was essentially like this really exciting thing that they all kept getting just looked like a wagon wheel. Like no kid ever got that excited about a wagon wheel, even when there weren't like, you know, twirls, you know, there were still better things to have than a fucking wagon wheel. Wagon wheels are shit, mate. Like let's, let's not fuck around here. They are shit. Yeah. If you're going to go for a wagon wheel type snack, get yourself a Tunnock's tea cake. That's super. Oh, I fucking love a cup. Do you remember mm. when I uh, when I I said that on Twitter I was going to eat a Tunnock's tea cake every time the SNP won a seat in the election? <laughs> <laughs> I nearly killed myself with Tunnock's tea cake. <laughs> Oompa lumpa doopity doo. Yeah. I've got another. Don't get. Don't, Hannah. You'll end up. I don't know what happens to Augustus. He gets. Who knows? He gets set to the the furnace mm. or something. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's all it's it's, it's quite scary. It's really yeah. horrible. It's yeah. that's what and I that, mean. that's that mean. Like, that starts off like it's a small world after all, and ends up like you say, Clockwork Orange. Like what, what <laughs> even is that? It's, the tunnel thing. It's just it's mad. But all the songs are shit. Frankly, they are all of them. 
I just can't like the, I mean the the sweet shop shop is just just that looks like a public service advert for like why you should <laughs> never go into a sweet shop. That is awful. And then the what the what the song the mum sings, cheer up Charlie. Right, the thing I don't understand about that is she sings it after he's gone. <laughs> it's like if you want to impart this information to him, maybe sing it to his face. What you're missing there, Hannah, is if if he hadn't left, we wouldn't have been able to witness the world's most forlorn walk. Yeah, Every, for ages. everything about that walk is so sad, so forlorn. Yeah, can we talk about the additional scene, which is the fizzy lifting scene, yeah, which for like me. It. Yeah, and also it just undermines yeah. the entire premise that yeah. Charlie's the good guy. And also that that Wonka would allow him to get away with it. Mm-hmm. Because everybody else, all they did was something that they were told not to do and they were punished for it. So what's so special about Charlie? Because he got a second chance, whereas none of them got a second chance. And indeed, I think Charlie, he gets a second chance because he puts the gobstopper back. So he's not going to sell it to But they didn't get Slugger. a chance to give the exactly and also i don't think charlie does it for good reasons i think he does it because he's really angry with wonka and he's like i don't want anything from you and puts it down grandpa joe's little rant there when he's like charlie's a great boy how could you do this to a kid and it's like yeah you broke you broke the rules Mm. so i mean good luck raising a kid that's not going to be as entitled as you are mate yeah quite um i suppose we should talk about about gene wilder briefly i think he is the thing that makes this film still watchable for me. I think it's an impeccably controlled performance of Wonka. And I still thought he was great and like absolutely had me fixated whenever he was on the screen. He is the best thing about it. I think that's hard to argue with, isn't it? Jim Wilder to me is like a White Stripes album in like, I'd say about 60% of what he does, what he's doing when he does something I love. About 20% I hate and the other 20% I'm like, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> and and that's definitely the, the, the Gene Wilder White Stripes album thing works here particularly well. Because I'd say uh-huh. like about 60% of it was genius. About 20% of it wasn't for me. But about 20% of it, I don't even know what he was aiming for. But I suppose in the fullness of time, it might become clear. I think he is of that, he's of that ilk of that I don't really like and Hannah I know you don't really like either of the kind of like over the topness I put him in the same kind of boat I mean it's it's unfair he's nowhere near like Jim Carrey or Robin Williams but just I feel like sort of on the edge of that and it's it's not really for me but here's the best thing about this film I think without a shadow of a doubt it's it's good for what it is I think I think Gene Wilder's great. Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah like I say, for the most part, I agree. But the 20% I don't like is probably the bit that Jen's talking about. But he has, like, way, I would say he has way softer edges than uh, Jim Carrey does. I mean, I can't bear Jim Carrey, apart from in Eternal Sunshine for the Spotter's Mind, possibly the Truman Show. But, yeah, when he's doing that, all of that, like, massively over-the-top stuff, I hate it. But There's think, actually very little OTT stuff. No, I think I think like I say, it's quite. I think it's it's quite it's quite a gentle performance. It's definitely the, for kids. There's a brilliant bit, and it's so beautiful where he's singing "Pure Imagination," which is a sickly song, but I think it Wilder is incredible in that whole sort of running scene where he's like introducing them to the factory and its wonders that he he loves so so much and he has created. And there's a bit where he ruffles Mike TV's hair, and then he just 
stops and pulls one of the hairs out and it's just this tiny little moment where he's like he clearly does not like kids very much at all and then they all go off and try stuff and he just keeps singing and I think it makes you realize that Wonka is a very lonely melancholy man of his own making but it's just that kind of little touch that he gives it I think is great agreed yeah film as a whole though uh clearly not very many birds in it not very many women to talk about just sad mama bucket doing all of the work for no return and uh demanding children rated or dated then for me it's it's a big fat dated i'm afraid an, an augustus gloop dated <laughs> yeah I, it's, I i can't say i would rush to ever watch it again See now, I would agree. It's it's. I mean, anyone who argued it wasn't dated, I think it's, it would be mad. But it it also gave me a lovely hour and a half. I enjoyed it. I thought it was hilarious. I'd forgotten how terrifying it was. The first act is just too long. That's yeah. true. Agreed. What are we watching next week? Next week we are going to be watching 1991's The Commitments, and I'm going to tell you this now because other people might have a hard time finding it if anyone is viewing along with us. Uh, unbelievably difficult to find a copy of it streaming. If you are on Amazon, you can get I think it's a seven day free trial with something called Acorn TV, and The Commitments is on that. The top half of my body is still, but the bottom half of my body is going like the clappers in excitement for watching uh, The Commitments. Standard Issue for All Women.